Amen. You may be seated this morning. We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in 2 Corinthians. So if you'll turn there this morning, if you do need a Bible, we have some extra Bibles that are available. And so, if I can... Jim, there he is. In the back, just raise your hand and we'll slip you a Bible. We're going to cover all of chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you'll turn there. We've looked at the first two chapters, and so chapter 3 will be next. It's been a wonderful study, and we want to just continue to study God's Word this morning. 2 Corinthians, New Testament, chapter 3. Spring is in the air, isn't it? Yeah. It is. All right. It's a wonderful time of the year. You there? Okay. Father, we just ask that you would just, Lord, we've had a wonderful time of worship, and we want a wonderful time in the study of your word. And so we commit this time to you. I pray that we would remember that cell phones need to be off, and we want to be still and, and have our ears open and our hearts uh, soft before you, and just be a people that are teachable. And Lord, to teach us by your spirit. Lord, to, to take what Paul has to say, even though it's a personal letter, that we can make application, we can learn from this morning. And that's why we're here. We want to draw close to you. We want to learn of you. We want to know more of your grace and mercy. And, and Lord, how can, we can live for you so that we can, Lord, just have that closeness and, and deep, intimate fellowship with you. So Lord, uh, please help us in that. And we ask that you would indeed bless this time in, in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if you've been with us in our study of 2 Corinthians, we've discussed Paul's relationship to the Corinthian church. And we know that Paul, that he was one that um, as he established the church at Corinth there on his second missionary journey, he would come into Corinth and he would begin to minister and the church grew very quickly, it exploded. And Paul stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half. And and Paul had a unique relationship with the Corinthian church in that it was a little bit different than his relationship with some of the other churches. And in the Corinthian church, even though ministry happened and things were exploding the, the church, they would sometimes kind of hold Paul out at arm's length. And, and Paul would have to write corrective letters to them. It, it, sometimes, as we know, his writings to them would be kind of harsh. And it grieved Paul to have to write those letters to the Corinthian Christians, but as we discussed last week, he wanted them to do well in the things of the Lord. He wanted them to bring uh, the, the Corinthians into a right relationship with God and with each other. And so we've seen that, that even though Paul was doing that, and he has a pastor's heart, he has a shepherd's heart, he has a real love for the people, some of them were very cynical and critical of his ministry, and they were questioning uh, the validity of Paul's ministry and his apostolic authority. And as he would write that letter of 1 Corinthians, many received it, but there were those who were offended by it. And so they began kind of this whispering campaign against the apostle, uh, questioning his apostleship, his ministry. And so in this epistle, as 
we have seen he's been opening up his heart. He is sharing with them about his affection for them, his concern about them. He's expressing his love that he feels towards them. And he's really, as I mentioned to you, sharing his heart in 2 Corinthians. So we're going to continue to see that as we move in now into chapter 3. We read in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. He writes, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So here Paul is, is continuing to write. He says to the, the Christians there, he says, Do we need letters to validate our ministry? Do we need to show our credentials? Do, do we have to have letters of commendation or recommendations to prove that the Lord has called us to ministry? And it wasn't that Paul was saying that such letters are not necessary or that they're wrong. Matter of fact, we're going to see later on in this epistle that he's going to write in here that receive Titus, that he's going to come to you, receive him, show love to him. And he would do that in certain parts of the New Testament. We saw not long ago when we finished our Roman study that in Romans chapter 16, he said concerning Phoebe that you receive her, the sister in the Lord who labors in the Lord. She's going to come to you with this letter. And so take care of her and, and receive her. And, and the epistles of commendation or recommendations were common and sometimes really necessarily, uh, necessary in the early church because Christians, as they traveled, Traveling was very difficult, of course, back 2,000 years ago. There wasn't the Comfort Inns and the Holiday Inn Expresses. There, there weren't the, you know, the restaurants to eat in like what we have today and fast food and all of that. But you were walking or you were on a boat and, and it would be very dangerous and uh, you would have to find your own housing. You'd have to find you know, a place to stay. And so the Christians were very generous and they would open up their homes to other Christians. And then also as the apostles and as uh, those of, that were pastors or others were traveling, they would go from city to city, and so the Christians again would host them. And so oftentimes, these letters of recommendations or commendations were necessary in the early church because there were those who were taking advantage of the generosity of the Christians and the hospitality of the Christians. There were also false prophets and apostles who would travel from city to city and say, well, Paul sent me or Peter sent me, so support me. So these letters of recommendations were often sent with Christians as they traveled. So Paul is not trying to say that it's, it's wrong to have a letter of commendation written on paper, but he's saying, I'm making a point here. Think about this, you Corinthians. You are our papers. You are our epistles. You are our letters, living epistles. The fact that you're born again, the fact that you're walking with God is proof that God has truly called us to ministry and, and that was brought to you when we came to Corinth. You are our letters of recommendation. Christ has written it on your hearts. He, he didn't use paper or deliver it on stones like he did with Moses in the Ten Commandments, but he wrote it on your hearts. And the ink that he used was the Holy Spirit. There is fruit in your lives. 
You have been changed, and, and that's what really matters. You are living epistles on, God, on how God has changed you and has done a work through you, and it's proof that God is using us to minister to you. You are our letters of our commendation, the fruit that has been born through you. And fruit is really is what matters, you see. It really isn't whether you have a PhD or THD or whatever's behind your name, but does your ministry bear fruit? Does it really show that God has called you to that ministry? Now, we know in Numbers chapter 16, as we speak about being called to ministry, we see that Moses and Aaron were the target of an insurrection by some individuals that came and challenged their ministry. Many of you know the story. There was Korah. Korah was from the tribe of Levi. There was Dathan. There was Abram. They would also bring with them about 250 leaders of the congregation of the children of Israel. And what they did is they began to complain against Moses and Aaron. They, they were saying of them, hey, you guys, Moses and Aaron, you think you're really special. You think that, that you take too much upon yourself here at the tabernacle, leading the children of Israel. You, Aaron, being the high priest that gets to go behind the veil on the Day of Atonement in the presence of the Shekinah glory of, of God. And they were challenging Moses and Aaron in their ministry. And, and they were saying, these guys that came against Moses and Aaron, hey, we're special too. And they were particularly single, single out Aaron. And, and it was Korah, as you read there in that chapter, that he really wanted to be the high priest. He had ministry. You see, as we've studied the Old Testament, we know that every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. And the Levites, the different families of the Levites, according to the book of Numbers, they had ministry in which they were to do. And in Numbers chapter 4, it tells that the family of Korah, what they were to do is they were to carry the Ark of the Covenant in the furnishings. But that wasn't enough for Korah. He wanted to be the high priest. He wanted to, to be the one that went behind the veil, even though the Lord had already established that it would be Aaron and his descendants that would be the priestly line. So Moses and Aaron went through this questioning of their ministry and, and the calling of God in their lives. Hey, who made you in charge? Who made you to be the head of, of leading these two and a half million people? Well, eventually they would find out as you read the chapter. And what happened was is that God opened up the earth and swallowed up Korah and Dathan and Abraham. And Numbers chapter 16 shows us very clearly that if you and I, that if we have this spirit of rebellion, what will happen is, is we're going to be pulled down. We're going to end up in the pits. We're going to be all swallowed up. And those 250 men that came against them, that, that came with, with Korah and, and those who were coming against them, what happened was that they were consumed by fire. You see, oftentimes there will be those who will want you to join in with them in their rebellion, in their challenging, and all of that. Be careful and don't get involved in it. Because what will happen is you're going to get burnt. And these guys got burnt literally. It was bad news. And God shows us he does not like that spirit of rebellion and, and what was going on. And so as you continue to read chapter 16 of Numbers, you move into chapter 17, the people came to Moses and said, hey, look what you've done, Moses. Korah and, and Dathan and Abram were all swallowed up in the earth and we've lost 250 of our leaders. You killed them, Moses, and they were blaming Moses for that. Like Moses can open up the earth and swallow people up. 
and call down fire from heaven. No, it was the Lord that did that. And so the people were really coming down again on Moses and Aaron. So God sent a plague and 14,000 were killed before the plague was stopped. And so God spoke to Moses and said, so I can put the complaints of the people behind me once and for all. You tell the people to bring a rod from each of the tribes of Israel. And you put Aaron's rod there um, for the tribe of Levi. Put them in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, before the Lord. And the rod that blooms is the one that's going to confirm once again who God has called to ministry as the high priest. And God looked at all those rods before him, and it was Aaron's rod that produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds, fruit that is. And the people saw that it was the rod of Aaron that indeed was was the one that had fruit on it. And they would keep that rod as a sign to rebels. Once again, as the Lord would say, that they would keep their complaints away from me. The fruit was the validity of Moses' ministry and Aaron's ministry. We need to understand when it comes to ministry, it's more than a piece of paper is what the Lord shows us in his word. That what Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthian believers. You see, Paul could have very easily have gotten a letter of, of commendation from Peter or from James or from John. That was not a problem at all. But Paul is saying, look at the fruit, look at the fruit. Of course, Jesus would say to us, you haven't chosen me, but I've chosen you, that you may bear forth much fruit. You see, the ministry, the call to ministry, is more than, than papers or certificates or ordinations or having any kind of degree. It has to be primarily a calling of God. And God gifting you for that ministry and working in you and through you, and the result is fruit is being produced. And Paul says, you are the fruit, and it's the proof of the validity of our ministry to you. In verse 4, and we have such trust through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. So Paul wanted to make sure that they understood that he knew that their sufficiency came from God, was from Christ. We're not boasting in whom we are. We're not boasting in our abilities, but what he has done in your lives through us and using us to bring the gospel. It's all because of the sufficiency of God. It isn't because of who we are, but of who he is, of his work through us and flowing through us. You remember last week that Paul asked the question in chapter 2, Who is sufficient for these things? And here he answers it. He says, Christ is sufficient. Paul uh, was saying, it wasn't my excellency of speech or my powerful presentation. It wasn't because of my great wisdom that won you over to Christ. Matter of fact, we're going to see that Paul's enemies, the ones who were coming against him, that were coming to the Corinthian church, they're going to point out his weakness, and we're going to see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that they're going to say concerning Paul that his personal appearance was unoppressive. In other words, he didn't wear all these fancy clothes and rich robes. His speech was contemptible. He was slow of speech. They would make fun of his oratory skills or whatever the case may have been. But that didn't bother Paul because he didn't consider himself sufficient for the task, the great task of changing lives for Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is sufficient for that. The apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you recall, that 
when I came to you guys, you know that I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I didn't come with excellence of speech. I didn't come with the wisdom of men. But I was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We know the story of the Old Testament when God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses said, Lord, I can't do that. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. The people aren't going to believe me. Besides, I'm not eloquent of speech. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. I stutter. It wasn't the deep, impressive voice of Charleston Heston. Moses says, you know, send somebody else. They're not going to receive me. I'm not sufficient. And I believe that one of the reasons that God chose Moses, because if, if Moses was powerful and persuasive, then he would have gotten the glory. And so he chose Moses, the most humble man on the face of the earth. In the gospel narratives, we know how Jesus would call a group of guys that were mostly fishermen. They weren't the ones that were the religious leaders or the religious elite from Jerusalem. And he would use these guys, an ordinary guys, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to go and share with others, just as he tells us to do that. He doesn't say to do it if you're good at it or if you're a powerful orator or have this charismatic personality, but rather just give the pure message of the gospel. We are only sufficient in Christ. He has chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world, to shame the wise and the strong. And we may sometimes think that, well, I'm not adequate enough to share the gospel or engage in ministry. You know what? None of us are. None of us are. And remember that. Because our sufficiency comes from Christ. It comes from God. The Spirit working in our lives. And so he's going to begin to touch on that in verse 6. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Lord has made us ministers of this new covenant, not of the letter because it kills, <clears throat> but rather of the Spirit which gives life. And you see, Paul would he'd be dealing with those who are trying to get people, the Christians, to once again be under the law. Rules and regulations, and that was a big problem in the early church. There are those who would come in behind Paul after he established those churches, the churches of Galatia and throughout Proconsular Asia and even throughout Greece. There would be those who would come along and they would say that Paul, he's always talking about grace. That's shallow and it's trivial. And if you're a real Christian, where it's really at is the law. And, and it will really show that you're dedicated if you're submitted to the law. And there are those who were talking to the Christians and, and apparently those at Corinth saying, Paul's just a lightweight with this talk of grace. But if you're real spiritual, then you'll keep the law of Moses and, and you'll keep the, the ritual of circumcision. We know that's what was happening to the Galatian believers, to others in Greece as well, because Paul talks about it to the Philippian church. So there are those Christians wanting to do better in the things of the Lord, and they were wondering, here are these other guys coming in, these legalists, saying that Paul's a lightweight, that the grace that he brings is cheap, and all these things that they are saying, and that the law is where it's at, and we should put ourselves under the law, with, which centers around the days and festivals and feasts and circumcision. And of course, if you read the book of Galatians, you see that Paul's focus on this topic as it was a big problem for those churches. 
We see it in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council that met, that that's what they were talking about as the apostles and the elders of the church got together and said, what do we do with these Gentile Christians that are getting saved? Should we tell them that they have to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised? Should we put them back under the law? So there are these guys in Corinth, I think, that were sharpening their knives, wanting the Corinthian Christians to make a decision, this painful decision. There was this mentality of legalism that Paul was always up against. And it would be here in this church. And he would wrestle with these guys. And they would come in and emphasize pain and rituals and regulations. So Paul says to these Christians here, we are ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter that was written on tablets of stone. It kills because you can't keep the law. You can't live up to the law. And, and, and it does sentence you to death. But the new covenant... The covenant which is under the Spirit, as we will see Paul explains to us, is written on the tablets of our hearts. In verse 7, But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So the law, the ministry of condemnation, because what the law was doing was condemning us. Paul says that in the book of Galatians chapter 3. You are condemned and, and thus you need the Savior of the world. That's what the law does. It makes you see that we fail, that we can't keep the law, and we need Jesus. And no matter how hard we try to keep it in our own energies, in our own fleshly endeavors, we can't, we fail, we fall short of it, and it condemns us. We saw that very clearly, Paul writing about that in our recent Roman study. It's the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, verse 7. And it becomes a schoolmaster to simply drive us to Jesus Christ, and it causes us to say, I am a sinner in need of the Savior in Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law, fulfilled it perfectly who took all of the punishment that you and I deserved upon himself on that cross because we failed to keep the law. He took the condemnation, Jesus, upon himself, dying for our sins there on the cross of Calvary. It's interesting that Paul says here in verse 9, drawing attention once again to that verse, says, for the ministry of condemnation had glory. There was a glory, in other words, associated with the law there at Mount Sinai. What does he mean by that? Well, the mountain of God was surrounded with, with smoke. It shook. There were thunders and there was lightnings, as you read in, in the book of Exodus chapter 19. There was the trumpet blast from heaven and the voice of God himself that we read. And the glory of the old covenant was shown in the face of Moses with the glory of his countenance. And if the old covenant which brought death had this kind of glory, then the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. 
We continue reading verse 10. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we can kind of follow what Paul is writing here and what he is saying. He's talking about, hey, you Corinthians, we are ministers of the New Testament, not of the law, the letter which kills, but of the Spirit which gives life, and the ministry of the law which can only condemn you. It had glory. And he points out that when Moses came down from the mountain of God, his face was shining. Having spent time in the presence of God, coming down with the law in his hand, he was shining his countenance. And, and, and that again was the ministry of condemnation and death. Yet there was a beauty and a glory in its own way. But the new covenant is more glorious and exceeds much more in glorious what he writes, sharing the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And then Paul points out something that we would not have known unless Paul here, inspired by the Spirit of God, would tell us this. We know from Exodus chapter 34 that when Moses came down from the mountain that he was shining. So they said, Moses, your face is shining, your, your countenance, put a veil over your face. And he would put a veil over his face until he went up on the mountain again. And from that account in Exodus, one would conclude or assume that he put a veil on his face so that the people wouldn't be blinded by the brightness of his countenance. But Paul here says something that was happening very interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says that wasn't exactly what was going on. We were told in verse 13 that he put a veil on his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. In other words, Moses put a veil over his face so they couldn't see that the glory was diminishing and that he would have to go back into the presence of God and he would recharge, if you would. And he would come back down from the mountain and he'd be glowing and the people would say, Moses, you're glowing. He put a veil on his face. But that glow would begin to diminish once again. That's what was going on. Say, what does that mean for me here this morning? Listen, just this. If you try in your own energies, in your own efforts, you're trying to keep your rules and regulations in your legalistic life, you can do it for a day or two. And you can come out saying, look at me. Look how I glow, but it's going to fade fast. And you can try to conceal your failure and cover the fact that you're not as holy as you thought that you are or as others thought that you were. And so you want to cover it up until you go and do your legalistic thing again and hopefully come out and fool a few more. But in reality, Paul is telling us that it is the best that the law can do. You can shine for a little bit, for a while, but the glow is going to go away rather quickly. Why? 
because you're doing it in your own energies. And because we fall short, we're, we're not holy in and of ourselves, it's true. Ask your spouse. Ask those who you work with you. Uh, they know. Those who are close to you, they know. And you might shine for a day or two or three, but ultimately, if it is according to your own efforts and your legalism and your ritualism and the law, it fades rather rapidly. And Paul, continuing to take this analogy even further, he says that the law and the glory that it has, it fades eventually. How much more glorious the ministry of reconciliation, that is salvation, the new covenant, what you and I get to live in, and share with others. And as we do that, a work of the Spirit, then we get to glow perpetually as we know that our sins are forgiven. And the price has been paid. The work is done. And we celebrate our salvation. And we surrender to the Lord. And we're born again by the Spirit of God. And we're a new creation in Christ. We live in the Spirit. And you enjoy what the Lord has done. And then you can glow continually when you understand and live in the new covenant. And Paul put this, this insert in verse 14. But their minds were blinded and his veil remains unlifted. Who is they? Well, Paul specifically talking about Israel, the Jews. Their blindness. There's a veil that lies on their hearts. The veil can be removed by Christ by seeing Jesus. And we saw that in Romans chapter 11, that there's a blindness to Israel in part until the fullness of the Gentile is, is fulfilled. And of course, there will be a day when the Lord comes back that the veil is going to be lifted. And Paul writes, in that day, all of Israel is going to be saved and they're going to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. And so God's not through with his people. He still has a plan for Israel, for the Jews. And we've covered that in Romans chapter 11. We've covered that quite specifically in our present study of the book of Revelation. But there today is this blindness in, in part. And it's interesting that when you go to Jerusalem, if you ever go to Israel, or you ever get a chance to talk with some of the Orthodox Jews about the temple and the efforts to rebuild the temple, there is with some of them, an urgency to have the temple rebuilt. Why? Because the law. The law which they hold to, the Old Testament, very clearly states that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There needs to be a death of a substitutional animal for the atoning of their sins. We see that very clearly as you go through the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, you bring your animal to the priest. He would you know, lay his hands, your hands, upon the head of that animal. You would confess your sins over that animal, and then the priest would slay that animal. So your sins were transferred to that animal. That animal was a substitution for you. The animal was a sin offering for you, and your sins then would be covered. And today, of course, there is no temple, as we discussed. There's no sacrifices. And if you ask them, how do you reconcile that? They say, well, what we do is we weigh our good works with our bad works. And then on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, it's really a day of reflection hoping that our good works outweigh our bad works. But some of the Orthodox Jews, the religious Jews, can feel really uneasy with that because they know what the Old Testament says specifically, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And they know that nowhere in the law, in the Old Testament, does it indicate that there is a substitute for the sacrifice of an animal as a way of receiving atonement for sin. So you can talk to them about that. It's quite interesting, and they get very uneasy. And, and then if 
you want, you can kind of talk about Isaiah chapter 53 and Psalm 22, which speaks about how the Lamb of God came and was sacrificed once and for all for the sins of men. Psalm 22, talking about specifically the death of Jesus on the cross a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, hundreds of years before a cross was even a means, crucifixion a means of executing somebody. Isaiah chapter 53, he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and so you can see that Jesus was our sacrifice once and for all for the forgiveness of sin. Can you see that? But we know that Paul says there's a blindness. There's a veil over their hearts, and they don't get it. Some do, but many don't. And Paul says their minds were blinded to this day. The veil remains unlifted and lies on their heart. And of course, it could be said that not just of the Jews, but anyone from whom there's a blindness and a veil over the hearts of people. We're going to see that Paul next week, he's going to talk about a blindness that comes from the enemy, Satan. And this, this blindness, this veil, it keeps people from seeing Jesus in the work for us on Calvary. And so it's important when we pray for those, when we're sharing the gospel, that we pray, Lord, open up their eyes. Lord, lift that veil so that they will see your son clearly and recognize their need to repent and turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Prayer is so important when we're talking with people about evangelism and sharing the good news, perhaps with family members or whoever it might be that's linked to you in your life. Not only do we need to talk to them about God, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, but we need to intercede. We need to talk to God about them. So pray for them. Lord, help this individual to see you, to take the blindfold off and that Satan has put on. Lift the veil that is on their hearts, soften their hearts, and help them see the glory of your grace and love and goodness, the glory of the cross, and that they would understand that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, a small room behind the veil where the tangible presence of God was. No one was allowed to go into that room except for the high priest once a year. And when Jesus was on the cross, that massive veil was ripped from top to bottom when he cried out, it is finished. And God was declaring that we can now come in the presence of his glory, the throne of grace because the price has been paid and the work is done and what Jesus has done for us. Lord, open up their eyes that they may see the marvelous things that you have done and the provision of salvation that comes to your Son. And again, verse 17, pointing that verse out to you. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So Paul here talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. There can be a lot of talk in the church today about the Holy Spirit. And Christians say, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I move in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's great. But sometimes they don't have any idea what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. They'll treat the Holy Spirit as an it, or a force, or a cloud, or a ghost-like manifestation of power. The Bible never refers to the Holy Spirit as an it, but a he. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Godhead Trinity. He is God. The Bible makes that very clear over and over again. He teaches, searches, he knows, he wills, he works, he speaks. It's not an impersonal force or a cloud of power. He is a person, not just any person, but God himself. And that's what Paul is telling us in verse 17. But also, 
that in the Old Covenant, when Moses entered the Lord's presence, he removed his veil according to Exodus chapter 34, verse 34. And in the New Covenant, it is the Spirit who removes the veil, or a major result of the New Covenant, is freedom. And again, Paul discusses that in detail in Galatians chapter 4. Paul compared those under the Old Covenant to children of slavery, and those under the New Covenant as children of freedom. This freedom is possible because Christ has redeemed us, freed us from the penalty of the law. Those who believe that, that they become children of God in this freedom and have access as his children is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For we have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereas we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the Holy Spirit, he is doing a work in me, conforming me into the image of Jesus Christ as we finish this morning, verse 18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as a, in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are his children. We're trophies of his grace. The Lord says, no longer will I give you tables of stone, but I'm going to write my will on the table of your heart. You're going to walk in the Spirit, respond to the Lord in His goodness and mercy and love, because the veil has been lifted. And now we can look into His face and look at Him with an open face, and we see the glory of the Lord, and we are changed from glory to greater glory, even by this wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. And that's really what we need to remember. See, oftentimes people think it's by ritualism or legalism or procedures or you know, some kind of program or something like that. It isn't by that. It's by spending time with the Lord and learning of Him and walking with Him and fellowshipping with Him and staying close to Jesus. It is Him. And we go through struggles and we realize our shortcomings and we desire to walk close with the Lord. And, and sometimes we can cry out, how, how, how? Lord, how can I do that? It's not how, it's Him. See, the answer isn't in a program or in a procedure. It isn't that at all. It's in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, as he writes about the glory of the new covenant, the Spirit gives life and the letter of the law kills. And, and I understand that if I desire to be conformed into His image from glory to glory to greater glory, it comes from what? Beholding Him. Beholding Him. And staying close with Him, to Him, as we just walk with Him as we fellowship with him, have a closeness, fix our eyes on him, as Hebrew declares, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, you become like you behold, don't you? Any of you that got small kids, when your little girls, when they, they watch uh, something, that there's princesses and all of that, they'll go and they'll start playing, you know, the princess, and, uh, you know, and, and they're the little princess, and the Prince is going to come and, and all of that. Uh, little boys is different. I don't know what they watch today. I know when my kids were smaller, you know, Power Rangers or whatever it may be, and the kids are all out there karate chopping each other and things like that, kicking each other. Whatever you focus on, you become more like. And what is so freeing for me 
is that I know that the key for me to walk in holiness and His love and peace and, and, and to be one that has that joy of the Lord, it comes by being close to the Lord, to spend time with Him, to focus on Him, to behold Him, means study Him. And that's why Jesus said, come to me and learn of me. Spend time with me. It isn't done legalistically. It isn't done by 10 steps and 12 steps. It's come by coming to Jesus and surrendering completely to him. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. It's not how, it's not what, it's him. So spend time in the word. Spend time in the word daily and regularly. Talk to him in prayer. You give thanks in worship. You be sensitive to hear his voice. And as you learn of him and stay close to him, everything else will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful message here this morning and being reminded of the wonderful new covenant that we live in, the covenant of the Spirit that's written on the tablets of our hearts, recognizing that Jesus, the one who kept the law, came and died for us. And Lord, so we thank you for that. And this morning, as we gather in this place, I thank you for those of us who are here. And, and Lord, as we are here, we, we want to give an opportunity, if anybody is here in this place, in the sanctuary, in the coffee shop, listening to this message on the radio, that you have not given your heart to Jesus Christ, surrendered to him, that he came and died for you, and he says, turn to me, repent, turn away from the world. And he invites you into a living and real relationship with God that comes through him alone. He invites you to receive forgiveness of sin. He invites you to have the hope of heaven. It's not found in anything else. You can't do it yourself. There's no one else who died for you and was put into a grave and rose again. It's only Jesus. There's no other name under heaven which a man or woman must be saved. He is our salvation. He is our Savior. And I pray that as he knocks on the door of your heart right now, that you would open up the door of your heart to him. That you would say that as you pray and come to salvation, today is the day of salvation, what the scripture says. And you can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior by coming in faith, by coming in simplicity, by coming in honesty and crying out to God right now. I want to give you a chance to do that. You can pray right where you're sitting, right where you're listening, that Jesus come into my heart and be my personal Lord and Savior because I know that I'm a sinner. You told me to turn away from the world and turn to you, and I do that right now. I surrender my heart. I come in simplicity and honesty, and I cry out to you. I believe that you are the Son of God who died on Calvary's cross for my sins, and that you were put into a grave and you rose again after three days, and that you're alive right now. You're alive in my heart, and you're writing your will and on the tablets of my heart right now. I thank you for your love and I thank you for opening my heart to you right now and taking the veil away to receive you as my Lord and Savior. And if anybody prayed that prayer this morning, 
I want you to raise your hand if you're here in the sanctuary. Anybody at all at this service? Giving your life to Jesus Christ. We want to bless you. Anybody at all? Just raise your hand up. Anybody giving your life to Jesus Christ? We want to give you some things. We want to encourage you. We want to pray for you. If you're out in a coffee shop, raise your hand. And then after a service, come in and tell us the decision that you made for Christ. If you're hearing this on the radio, we want you to call the church. And at the end of the broadcast, there's a number. And just be able to, to call and tell us the decision that you made. Father, we thank you for for your moving in this place. And, and Lord, reminded us of how blessed we are as a people to just come and, and receive your incredible grace. It's not cheap grace. It costs you everything, Lord. Your son who came and died on Calvary's cross. But Jesus came and gave all that he had so that he could have the treasure, the treasure being us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to stay close to you and to learn of you, to be ones that are in the word, just allowing your spirit to touch our hearts, to be men and women of prayer, men and women of worship. And Lord, just walking closely with you. Lord, I know that there are many needs that are in this place this morning, and I pray that you would just help those who are hurting, restore relationships that are strained, Lord, that you bring healing to those who feel tired, or Lord, those who perhaps are sick physically, maybe just emotionally. That, Lord, that you would uh, give us direction to those who need that direction, provision for those who need provision. Lord, that you would show yourself strong on behalf of your people this week. And may we go out of this place rejoicing in you, Lord, the wonderful work that you have done. So bless everyone here as we go our way, and it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?